What's up, Wildcatters? Have you heard about Collide yet? It's the newest community hub for the next generation of energy professionals. Collide.io is where you need to be if you're looking to connect, learn, and grow in this dynamic industry. And don't miss out on Collide GPT, our cutting edge AI chat designed specifically for the energy sector. It's like having an industry expert right at your fingertips. Join thousands of your peers who are already making the most of this incredible resource. Head over to Collide.io and sign up today. That's Collide.io. The future of energy is here. Don't get left behind. I, 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 Anyway, so I made, just because I've kind of turned into a social media guy, I made a cute little video about mm-hmm. OMD and all that and, and just texted it to her, kind of, you know, hey, are you going to go go with me and all this sort of stuff? The 30-year-olds around here? Oh, my God, that's so cringe, dude. <laughs> She's never going to call you back. <laughs> well, and now here's my, what is, OMD is a band? OMD is a band, yes. This is, what kind of music? They are kind of poppy uh british 80s you've you've heard uh you've heard uh if you leave don't leave now no possibly possibly <laughs> okay who do you listen to i'm like i'm like the i'm like the contemporary bands are like i had a jazz fest weekend where it was like the avid brothers and mumford and sons okay like aging white guy cool folk rock it was like it was uh that was like my it was in heaven like you know to see them both back to back but, you know, it's like now I'm like, you know, I just, yeah. So it's like that and, uh, you know, but, and then, you know, definitely nostalgia. You know, I have to do my playlist for my 50th birthday party on Saturday, Saturday night. So I'm what, like, what's the song that's going to get the party going? What, what is your go-to? And I will fess up first since we've been friends so long. Okay. I'll fess up the embrace. I still break out into chills when I hear the riff from Talk Dirty to Me by Poison. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, the crazy thing about that is like, you, we remember I used like poison was thought of as like hard rock. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it was so edgy or like Bon Jovi. Like those guys are why I mean, wow. those guys, it's like heavy metal. Yeah. Heavy, I was like, ah, yeah, you look at it now. It's like, it's the most gentle pop. Like you can, you can imagine, but I think, you know, it's probably talking heads are going to get people, uh, there get people go. going, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of, I'm trying to think whatever. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some. What else will get people? You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's like Taylor Swift ads, you know, that will be in that <laughs> crowd, unfortunately, you know, as a, as a 50 year old birthday party. So that, ta- you know, she's going to get people. What else is going to get people? Um, uh, there, uh, did you hear this? Like, uh, the new basement tapes. It was like they found some Dylan lyrics and wrote some. Oh, really? No. Wrote some, uh, um, uh, sort of like they did it for that Woody Guthrie album. It's like a whole bunch of people, like My Morning Jacket and Marcus Mumford, did like new songs to some like random, like scratched off lyrics that Dylan never recorded songs to. Oh, wow. And there's a song that's gotten a lot of play, Kansas City, that Mumford, Marcus Mumford did. That's pretty, pretty I awesome. I went and saw Mumford and Son. Didn't have a drummer. That was kind of a, that was kind of wild. Yeah. Uh, Marcus got back up there and played drums yeah. on a couple of songs, but yeah. Yeah, we saw him at jazz fest it was pretty awesome. and then they had like he did a uh, house of the rising sun yeah with, uh, um 
John Batiste and like Trombone Shorty at the end. It was like pretty, pretty yeah, awesome. like Trombone Shorty. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. You know, I guess he has done House of the Rising Sun before. It's like been part of his shtick for a while. But you know, it's like New Orleans. You feel like you know you're edgy. You're edgy. You're edgy for <laughs> you're you know House of New Orleans. You know? You're very cool. Right. So Gary, my mom actually watches uh, this podcast. Okay. So tell mom who you are. My name's Gary Cernovitz. I'm Ms. Yates. She go, still Ms. Yates? Still Ms. Yates. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, I'm Gary Cernovitz, Ms. Yates. I uh, had kind of two professions in uh, my life. Uh, one is uh, I've been working at Lime Rock for 19 years, an energy private equity firm, doing fundraising, business development, investor relations, a lot of other things. Uh, before that, I was at Goldman Sachs with the founders of Lime Rock, but also that time I've been a writer, all the, you know, so... Uh, this is a fourth book coming out, but there have been three novels, one nonfiction book about energy, and then articles for New Yorker website, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you know, on and off. So it's kind of been two professions, as I joke, neither of them as successful as I want to be. And so not <laughs> sure if I failed at two professions or uh, half succeeded at two professions. There, there you go. Yeah. One plus one is well, two, one, maybe. Or, 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 or less, yeah. And then uh, from a uh, you know, long time, you know, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Lived in New York City from the uh, week I graduated college till- uh, Where'd you go to college? Cornell. Cornell. And just sort of flowed into um, Wall Street with no interest in it uh, whatsoever. And you know- that, that was like a major flex right there. I, I went well, to I Wall mean, Street even though well, I wasn't but you're, interested. You're, you know, you're a few years older, but you understand like that's a very different generation where I was a European history major you know, you you put a physical resume in a box uh, at Cornell. I didn't get called back uh, at all. And that was the only Wall Street job I applied to. So I didn't get called back at all uh, until April. And like the jobs were like, I was going to go, I, I got a job offer to be a speech writer in New York City for the parks commissioner, who was like a kind of a real comical asshole. Sorry, Miss Yates. Um, I, uh, Sally Yates raised me. <laughs> we're, we're all good. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm, it's proved. You know, I was going to go to California with some buddies. And then this job, I get a call back in April from uh, um, uh, you know, the head of equity research uh, kind of administration at Goldman Sachs. And like, I'd obviously been through the A resumes of like people they actually wanted to hire and found these other just like stack of them. And I, I had very good grades, but, you know, clearly had shown no interest in a career in finance and brought me down in April. And they walk you around to various senior analysts in the equity research. So it's like chemicals, petro, uh, pharmaceuticals. They brought me a guy, Todd Bergman. And there was two senior oil and gas analysts at Goldman Sachs, Todd Bergman's guy, Don Texter. And Todd was, you know, at that time thought he was, you know, we had this conversation, thought he was like ancient beyond imagination because he had gray hair, but he's probably younger than I am today. Um, and he was like, someone had given him very short notice to go on. He wanted to go to, at that time, Russia at the kind of opening of finance in Russia. And he needed someone in two months. And he's like, the conversation was like, you know, I don't know anything about finance. And he's like, do you know how to use a computer? I was like, yeah, I know how to, I know how to use a computer. It's like, I don't really know any advancement. He's like, do you know arithmetic? It's like, I, I know arithmetic. And kind of, he hired me. And like a very, you know, sort of, you know, and I think I would have been hired by maybe others, but it was like a very. So you go one for one and land Goldman Sachs. And, and, but the, yeah, but the, uh, you know, the coincidence is like Reynolds and Farber were there in the equity research department, 85 Broad Street. Right. So, and they have a very similar story of like Farber was actually given a choice to be the package good 
goods junior analyst or oil and gas. And package goods analyst was like a very woman, Nomi Gez, like a very big star at Goldman Sachs. Like, I'm going to call the earnings report on Nabisco. That was like a huge, <laughs> that was like a huge deal. And he chose oil and gas. And like, but all three of us had like this very similar, you know, time where, a, you know, liberal arts degree or general economics degree. It just wasn't what it is today where, you know, middle schoolers are getting internships at Goldman Sachs in order, <laughs> in order to get a job. And so it was like, it was, you know, it's so that I got, I got a lot of things in life. It was luck, demographic luck, uh, you know, 50 years ago, you know, here's a fun fact for you, um, was the lowest live births in American history from like 1949 till today. Like boomers, there's 4 million. Now there's about 4 million. There's like 3.1 million. You got know, kind of bottom ticked in 1973. Oh, really? And so it's not that hard to get college. It's not that hard, to, uh, relative hard to get into jobs. I mean, all the things you think about, if there's a, there's a third more people competing for these limited spots than kids born in 1973. I mean, it was Watergate, a lot of other reasons why it was, you know, Roe versus Wade was 1972. You know, so right. <laughs> there's, there's, there is, there is, uh, we will not go down uh, there, but there's, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but no, there, it, I'd never heard that. Yeah. So. so it's like, it was, yeah, it was like an easier time to kind of, you know, and like parents weren't fretting about like, you know, even, you know, getting a job or you're going to move back. You know, it's my parents like, now the one thing about that job and John Reynolds and I joke about it. He had gotten an offer at like UBS and Goldman Sachs. Um, and UBS was like $31,000 and Goldman Sachs was like $28,000. And he was like, I'm taking the UBS job. That's $3,000 more. <laughs> and his dad, who was, you know, work for, you know, kind of a, kind of a role in, uh, you know, kind of uh, a sales role kind of in, in at, uh, uh, phone companies like John, you live your life how you want to live it, but I would advise you. <laughs> Three thousand dollars seems like a lot of money to you at the time. I mean, I mean, coming out of business school, so not oh. not just undergrad. Um, my job offer from Stevens, and it was the only Wall Street job oh. offer I get, and I put that in quotes. Uh, Twenty six thousand dollars a yeah. year, and and it was crazy because I'm sure, and that that was and I was rock. great. I was grateful. No, I was it here. It was in Houston. Yeah. I wanted to do well, but not well enough to get promoted to Little Rock. God. That was kind of that was kind of the way I walked it. Because the crazy thing, uh, like you know, just thinking about like generational differences is like I got the job at Goldman. I I made thirty four. I'm younger. I'm three years younger than you. You and John right. are about the same age. I'm, so by that time, Goldman Sachs junior analysts were making thirty four thousand dollars a year, and like people getting jobs in publishing or advertising were making twenty four. But they're probably still making, you know, right. forty, and go, you know, Goldman Sachs making one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it's like you're still part of like this undifferentiated scrum of young people, you know, kind of working, right. you know, kind of. But it was not like you were on a different path than it is today. So it was, yeah. you know, and and you know, I lived with two roommates. We had like a in the city, we had a temporary wall to put in, so we had a three bedroom instead of a what was effectively a two bedroom. So it's just like classic, like young people versus like, you know, you get out of college and you deserve to be rich and get out of Wall Street, which is seems to be seems to be what people want today. So a year and a half later, I got promoted to associate because uh, I started as an analyst, yeah. even though I had an MBA. It was like, man, that was my shot in the door. Got a promoted to associate. Salary got bumped to sixty five thousand. What'd you do with it? What'd you do with all that money? Literally. All the excess amount in my paycheck went 
to me buying a brand new BMW Z3. Bonds car. Oh yes. <laughs> very young Houston Houston Finance Oil Bro. You know, that was, was not that was not an original. I was married. Movie. God bless King to Kim's credit. Uh Kim let me do it. Because yes. I wanted Bonds car. So anyway, that was cool. So do this. You've been you've been at Lime Rock for 19 years. Yeah. So level set energy investors. Where are we right now? And I think it'd be great if you put some context into things like, well, two years ago it was here, 19 years ago it was here. Yeah. And I'll go to the bathroom, go get another Coke, go get us tacos or whatever, and let you talk for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. But I, I, I'd love to, yeah. I'd love to give the audience just kind of where we are today. Cause I think of all the things that us outside of finance yeah. or that people outside of finance don't appreciate is just how dynamic it is, how investors think it's, it's the opaque black box to folks. Yeah. I mean, you, were there, Lime Rock was there, Quantum, the 25-year-old firms, you know, kind of 98. So 98, Lime Rock was founded. John and John asked me to join them as their first investment team associate. I left, said, I'm done with Wall Street forever. Good luck with this crazy, stupid thing called oil and gas private equity. I'll never see you. You know, I'll see you again, but maybe not. Right. And so they went on to their first two funds. They brought me back. In 2004, I saw him at a wedding in Sweden of a guy who took the job that uh, they offered me, another guy we worked with at Goldman. At his wedding, they had had, hey, we had had like one investor relations woman who they let go. And they offered me, I think it was like $1,000 a week to write their fund three PPM, which is like, I don't know what a PPM is. They're like, you know how to, you've written two books, Gary, you can... Take the fun two PPM. It's like it was a very strange um, ask, and it was a uh, yeah, you know. And then they at, and I did that, and they said, "Can you work part time till the end of the year?" And you know, and it's like the classic frog or lobster in a pot. Here I am, nineteen years later, and right. you know, Lime Rocks raised ten billion dollars. So it's like joke. From two thousand four to two thousand eight, it was a wonderful time to be have my job. <laughs> it was like there was the China super cycle. Energy private equity was still not really an industry. There were few firms. All those funds, you know, before that, did the great financial crisis, did great. And there was this period, and the shale revolution saw part of it, where the initial purpose of energy private equity, going back to David Swenson, was like real assets, this uncorrelated, you know, you know, kind of gives you you know diversity in your diversification in your portfolio, inflation, hedge. all that, all that stuff, yeah. you know. That there were there been a couple periods where that combined with you got three X funds, four X funds. It's like yeah. awesome. This is your safe bet that sits next to your real estate, but in fact giving you venture capital or you know private equity returns. And so there was a period based on three hundred million Chinese peasants uh, going to work, <laughs> you know, and starting to consume a lot of oil and minerals and things like that. China super cycle where it was people were underinvested in energy. The funds were doing great. The funds had done great. And it was very, very easy to raise capital. So, so I talk about that uh, period because I joined Kane in 2002, yeah. March 2002. And I tell people about that period. The single greatest thing that happened that in retrospect that I didn't realize was happening at the time is, you know, 98 when Farber and Will Van Lowe and Ken Hirsch oh. and those guys, they're in there in the private capital bucket sitting there going, no energy. It's better than biotech or buyout and all that. 
that was hard. Yeah. We became an allocation during the period you were talking about. Then it was just like, why me versus Lime Rock? And I used to always say, you should do both. Yeah. <laughs> and people were. And people, yeah. I mean, people, I mean, people were. The Lime Rock Resources Strategy was uh, founded in 2005 because people came to us and said, there's only merit in NRVS doing this. We need a third option. Like, so like, strategies were being brought into being based on investor demand for more, put more capital work because, you know, it was, and, and you remember not only was energy underinvested, 2008, Matt Simmons, oil is 140. There's a sense it's going to 300, 400, and like people were, you know, and, and this comes in, you know, in generally in energy investing, there's always all investing, but specifically in oil and gas, there's the greed and the fear departments. Right. And you make a lot, you can raise a lot of money very easily when you hit both the greed and the fear department. <laughs> I fear my portfolio being exposed to $200 oil price, and I really want to make money, many make money doing that. So my first four years, you know, was, you know, and we had, Limerick had extraordinarily good returns on our funds. It's a team that, uh, you know, I've always been very proud to be part of. And it's been very easy all 19 years to like sell the product, if you will, because these are people I care about. This is an investment strategy I like. But for those first four years, it was like, I, you know, CalPERS, like, we want to put $250 million in your fund. And like John and John, like, Gary, you just handle whatever you handle the allocation. <laughs> so I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, you know, we don't really have room for $250 million, but thank you for asking. Thank yeah. you for asking. So it was like there was then for the next 15 years <laughs> of my career, it has been a very, very different market. Now, some of that is Lime Rock going through like a natural evolution of any private equity firm. But a lot of that has been, you know, saturation of the market. So you went from, you know, I mean, there's what? Six OGs, Kane, Lime Rock, NGP, uh, NCAP, Quantum, SEF. You know, then First Reserve and Riverstone were kind of there, but have kind of right. gone, gone, gone that. You know, it came 35, 40 firms, all the bulge bracket guys doing it. So it became extraordinarily crowded. And then obviously the shale revolution was the greatest thing ever happened to the sector and the worst thing ever happened to the sector. You know, well, the, you had uh, you had the you had the whole beta story that yeah. you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Now you were able to go in and pitch alpha too. Oh, with shale, we're going to even outperform. Yeah. yeah. And it's and this is one of the most you know, objectively speaking, one of the most important things ever to happen to you know industrial United States in terms of this kind of miracle of of U.S. becoming a dominant oil and gas producer again. And obviously it had some very big wins. And then the two things that you know, also happen is deflationary for the entire sector. So that fear element, if you think about it, shale had the opposite effect. Instead of inflation protection, I, I joke with uh, Christian Buskin, your number one fan, <laughs> that in, in, instead of uh, inflation protection, you got deflation exposure, which was, which was oil and gas private equity. And then you got, um, you know, just... You know, so all your conventional assets were worth a lot less. And then obviously there was the casino element to the industry trying to delineate new areas, some doing it sincerely, some doing it insincerely, some, you know, you're at a casino and just having fun and putting more, more, more chips on the board, uh, on the roulette wheel. And so that led to a decade of very, very poor returns for public and private. And that coincided with like a narrative in the market which was, this is judgment, you know, on, <laughs> on the sector for oil and gas, you know, and and so t 
2000, so there's like a lot of funds raised in 2018, 2019. And those funds were still raised pretty straightforwardly, I think, that that last. In like 2019, 2020, you saw just sort of this narrative written of it was easy for, and every institution was hit by a four horsemen of the apocalypse, I call them. Uh, politics, you know, some sort of uh, divestment, uh, bad returns, extraordinarily highly volatile and bad returns. So it wasn't even just a straight line. <laughs> and then like lack of liquidity. I mean, still funds. I mean, as you know, institutional investors have pacing models and that based on you're going to return the capital I give you in four to seven years. And that works in private equity and venture and things. It broke in oil and gas. So every institution had I didn't, th- you know, that's interesting. I don't know that I fully appreciate it because I've always kind of boiled it down. We had the red problem, the losses, and the green problem, you know, yeah. the politics you're talking about. But it really did grind to a halt. Yeah. Um, now that you say that, because we weren't sending the money back. I mean, and yeah, even we, people- used, to, we used to like, what is wrong with this company? We've had it 18 months yeah. and we haven't sold yet. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, and, and, you know, and it kind of, so you had all four of those and you really had, 2021 you know there's COVID, obviously in 20 it was just it was kind of like embarrassing cringe it was cringe (laughs) to invest in an oil and gas private equity fund you know and and you've gotten through that um in a way so you know this year will be the best year for energy private equity capital raising since 2018 2019 with you know, quantum has already raised two and a half billion. Cambridge just had a billion dollar fund. We're clipping along between our two strategies. Probably have six hundred million dollars. It's like a very, it's gonna be a very good. The problem is, um, everyone's basically trying to raise that. So there's not going to be enough for everyone, and this is going to be it's a survival of the fittest moment. So some of these firms are not going to come on the other side. It does feel like we have dead man walking. Oh yeah, you already have, and then you're gonna and you have and you know, you've heard about a few who've already kind of given up. Uh, suspended, and you're going to get folks to the other side. And and there's some very unfortunate things that can happen to their LPs is, you know, zombie funds, milk right. you know, assets for as long as they can, because I'm never going to raise a fund and I'm making $12 million a year in management fees. So I should do that as long as I can. And you can, you can always talk yourself into a year from now, this will be worth yeah. one and a half percent yeah. more. Therefore, I'm justified in yeah. holding it. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you have like a thing where you know, a few things changed. Um, um, you have, uh, you know, greed came back in. Um, in terms of the values post-COVID. Like some people did some pretty amazing deals in 2020, 2021. So as an industry telling people like, hey, this wasn't, hey, we found this corner of Pecos County that we're going to drill seven wells and flip. It was, we bought this for two times cash flow and it came with those, you know, so you had you had a greed element that it then. And then especially a year ago, you had fear because the same narratives that you really hadn't heard since 2008 of, you know, Russia is going to, drop two and a half million barrels a day out of their 11 million oil's going to 200 300 or the broader revenge of the old economy thesis that you're going to have a, a cycle away from tech and financial services to energy and mining and things yeah, like you had a lot of people like worried that my portfolio is you know not going to have what's going to be the market leader for the 2020s 
So that's that's interesting because, you know, when you have a podcast, you say things just kind of controversial so that people, plus I kind of always do that anyway, whatever. Chuck, yeah. It's it's always (laughs) funny. Sometimes people come up to me. I remember when you said this. I said, I said that? God, what an idiot. But so I've kind of jokingly said we're not going to see what you're calling fear until a CIO can be a former CIO because they didn't have exposure to energy. You actually... You actually felt that in the market a little. I mean, okay. you have, you, I mean, because you know, at five percent of the S and P five hundred, even if you miss the best performer, have you really risked your job? Oh yeah, and you you didn't feel like no one was getting yelled at then, but you had conversations in an endowment and like people who are on on board, where every endowment or foundation or public pension fund usually has you know a politically diverse board, right? And when oil and gas was an underperforming sector, when you had students giving you petitions or pensioners giving you petitions, the guy who sort of liked oil and gas was just like, I'm not going to cut up here. You know, I'm not going to keep my opinion. Because like in very, you know, you, you know, I think now you got conversations had reached neutral. It's like, hey, that guy's speaking up. It's like, listen, we have not made an investment in this sector for eight or nine years or about four or five years more likely. Should we be thinking about it? That was the first step. And you did have a little bit, no one fired, but there was like a very interesting um, Harvard management's fiscal year 2022 letter came out in October and, and in college endowments have a June 30th fiscal year. And it's, it's only like a two or three page letter, but above the fold on the first page, you know, an old newspaper talk was a paragraph about how we didn't have oil and gas exposure and that's why we underperform versus those earth-hating endowments who did, <laughs> did better than it. And it was like, you know, benign, but like the fact that that was so prominent, the sixth paragraph, I think it was, in the first half page you read was a sign that like the fear was coming. You know, that was a good warning sign. The fear is coming to the market. Over the last, this year, greed and fear have dissipated a lot. As oil's gotten to more benign, it's now rising into the 80s mm-hmm. again. But it was in the, you know in the 70s, but it's getting to the 80s because Saudis restricting production. And the other thing is like the market, you know, uh, for new deals is interesting, but it's not like 2021 where you know there were just like nickels on the street of Houston that you right. could, that you could pick up because you know there is capital out there. And like sellers, if your pitch is like, you should sell me this at three times cash flow, because I think oil is going to be 100 in five years. They're like, well, it's three times cash flow, and I have seven pumpers. Right. I'll just sell it in five years when oil's is $100. So you have yeah. some properties transacting, but it's not, it's reasonable prices, you know, but it's not a market where, you, you know, I think energy private equity can go and say, this is the easy, easy, easy time to raise capital. Uh, that, that's been my sense is that, most bids lose out to I just don't want to sell because you've cleaned up your balance sheet so you're not the walking dead anymore Um, you really don't have that kind of shiny sparkly use of proceeds to go do you know I I don't you know nobody wants me drilling that much right so I don't need to sell this field and deploy the capital there so yeah I mean one unnamed uh, private equity firm has a pitch deck that you know you get to see these kind of things occasionally and it's sort of you know we have these x number of companies that are generating billions of dollars of free cash flow but give us billions of dollars (laughs) (laughs) 
as those platform guys, like they don't actually need your new money, you know, they, right. you know, to your point, like they're doing very well. If they wanted to buy properties or drill new well, it'd be more actually accretive to your initial equity investors to just have them go do it uh, if there's if there's these opportunities. So there is there is sort of a, and so it's, you know, the business on the new capital side, still opportunities. There's always competition in every investment sector. So right. it's not like there's ever going to be this like miraculous 10-year period where every private equity firm is just going to easily make money. It shouldn't, be, you know. Right. Yeah, I think there's a Charlie Munger quote, like, this isn't exactly it, but like, investing isn't supposed to be easy, right? right. Yeah, yeah right. you know, which is like, you know, it's not, that that's not going to be the case. But you do have now sort of firm, yeah, it's sort of, it's a grind, but it's better than it was a few years ago. I mean, infinitely better than it was a few years ago, where it was like, you know, firms had made very conscious decisions to end being in the oil and gas business. I think Lime Rock were very happy that we, kept Limerock Partners, Limerock Resources doing exactly what they've always done. We started an energy transition growth equity strategy, doing like EV charging installation, that kind of stuff. But we, I, I call it like the Norway model. Like those guys, different team, they're wake up every day. How do we uh, accelerate the energy transition and stop the use of oil and gas? Well, the oil and gas strategy is like, we're going to invest money in oil and gas to make our investors money. Norway exports a billion and a half, million and a half barrels a day of oil. But they, you know, have whatever sixty percent penetration of EV. It's like God will judge the Norwegians in Lime Rock. We did so the as we were talking in the car on the way over. The girlfriend's British, and she has your chast- your, your girlfriend. My girlfriend, just British. for my wife. Is yeah, watching exactly. this. I want to yeah, exactly. clarify. Let's, let's, clar- <laughs> let's clarify. That. Um, and she's chastised. <laughs> us on big digital energy because we talk about europe as a uniblock you know we get and she's like it is 25 to 30 countries we're all different so what we started doing on bde is we would actually deep dive a country each week and go through energy use etc and when we went through norway what's fascinating about it is you're right they've they've got all this oil they've got all this money they've the electric vehicles are sixty percent, seventy percent. They're actually using as much oil as they yeah, ever yeah, have. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the dirty little secret yeah. of yeah. And like, there no one's stopping exporting it too. So yeah, so right. I think so I think you know what we you know. So back to the market today. So they're you know they're clearly most of energy capital raising is like it is open for re up with your existing partners. You know, so okay. I think that is pretty standard now. And there, there's a little bit of you know. Uh, unjust uh, serendipity involved because what happened with divestment, what happened with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it isn't necessarily your fault. University of Michigan, you know, longstanding public investor in, I think, Kane, right? Right. And, and yeah. Lime Rock. They had students, um, you know, on the, uh, you know, at the, at the regents meeting, like banging on their car, not letting them go to vote to divest. They have come out with a policy not to sell, but just never invest again. They were our largest investor in the last fund, you know, versus, you know, a state of Florida or a Texas pension where actually has the opposite pressures of like DeSantis or Abbott or like making oil and gas private equity commitments is good for my political. Like, thank God that I would like to have more of those. And yeah, so there's a little bit of sort of luck involved. Right. Um, But I think re-ups are clearly happening with happy investors and generally, I think most private equity firms, on average, about half of your 2018-2019 fund, if you're a responsible 
deliver well. And a lot, you know, and our funds have been very good over the last those, those periods. And, you know, in uh, in a vague way, SEC. Um, and uh, right. um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but you know, I think reups is kind of that that that. And then the issue is like the war of all against all for the very rare investor who's like doesn't have exposure to oil and gas and wants it and or like wants to add groups because most people even if they're re-upping they're actually quietly you know taking the unfavorite child and like putting a pillow over its uh, <laughs> over its face and re-upping with their one or two favorite ones right but that but like the joke of and i'm you know i've been in this business a really long time and i'm friends with a lot of uh, my our competitors people do the same role and it's like you know you get a couple beers with them and you're like ah oh, yeah you know you're going to the same cities you're going you're, right, you know, it's right. like it's like it's 70 80 you know kind of real institutions that may put one new name in the portfolio this year and that's of and they're the prettiest girl at the dance and they know it yeah and then <laughs> yeah. and they also you know i mean i was i was joking and then there's a lot of like sort of family offices that for you know had liquidity events and kind of have a reason to want to be in oil and gas but you know, and that's a lot of the new source of capital. But those folks, as I was joking to someone uh, yesterday, you know, giving up all my standard jokes here right now, I'll have to come up with new ones. It's like, that's all podcasting is. <laughs> it's like, I'm milking. I'm milking a, a lifetime of materials. Like you know, I my job is like I'm selling like Delta One tickets to Europe, like you know, flatbeds. Amazing. You know, I've never been on Delta One to Europe, but I think, right. I assume I, from from my seats, I think they look very nice. Um, and I'm like selling very very nice. Long, you know, all the good things about Lime Rock and things I believe in. It's like, you know, I'm like, this is going to be the best time you're ever going to get to Europe on this flight. And some of these like three, four billion dollar family offices, it's not the principal, but even the, you know, chief investment office, like, we don't really fly commercial here. Yeah. <laughs> a rich guy family office. Like, we don't. Yeah. So, like, a blind pool fund is Delta One, you know, yeah. to Europe where they're wanting, like, do you have a secondary for us or a co investment for us or some side deal for us? And then, Maybe, you know, so I think the challenges of those names doing it, there's a certain edgy contrarianness to those names that kind of want to come into this market. And I think there's uh, those guys also have a kind of an edgy contrarianness against private equity in general, which is like, you know, where, you know, have all the, you know, it's just not cool, yeah. right? To be in a, to be in a blind pool vehicle with, you know, a state pension fund. Right. You know, it just and it's like probably even those state pension funds have done better performance than you and you have over your history by not trying to be cool. It's still, you know, there's still that agency problem as David Swenson, you know, kind of made famous. Yeah. So the so the discussion with existings today, and I'll just ask a question and you can answer or politely decline and, and and tell tell another one of your jokes, but are we seeing I would think we're we're seeing existing investors go okay where am i on energy where am i allocated and so if historically an investor did 100 they may be coming to you and saying well we only want 15 because yeah. we actually have so allocation i think is a big issue talking to existings any pressures on fees is that playing into it or uh, or yeah. i can't believe you'd ask me that chuck <laughs> well, i mean i think people want i mean i think that is done more through non-blind pool stuff so amortizing fees with co-investments or secondary so it's done less of like you know you should charge one in ten for a blind pool fund right. than um yeah, hey what can we do besides this to have over our complete experience of lime rock you yeah. know a kind of a lower fee burden and i think the groups there have groups that have been tried to do like accordion funds and things like this which is like 
do 50 in this fund and then 50 in this other fund that has no fees and carry. And it's like, well, what is the difference between the two? Yeah, two bonds? <laughs> I used to have that discussion with some powers that be in yeah. LA. It's yeah. always like, we need to do this. It's like Cardinal. I go, I'd rather just cut the fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just yeah, do exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, if, if that's what's stopping us from raising yeah. money, let's just cut the fees. And, and I think for a lot of it is just, yeah, a lot of discussions with existing investors has been really, it's not, you know, they're happy customers. It's just like, hey, you know, what is our allocation to energy? And sometimes, you know, it's because of their allocation of Lime Rock. Like, you know, what, you know, yeah. you know, and we have a, you know, we have to get it down to, you know, six, 7% from, you know, from a leading endowment at 8% energy is like way out versus, you know, probably 3%, uh, probably now more, more standard. So I think some of with the, I mean, in the heyday, did we hit 12, 13? Yeah, it think, felt like we did. I mean, I think there was like, yeah, for real assets, but most of that real assets was, Oil and gas, yeah. So I yeah. think, yeah, that that was definitely, um, yeah. And uh, and uh, the other thing is like a lot, you know, there's a turnover of people too, because endowments always in foundation, you know, foundations and pension funds are always getting new. It's a relatively high turnover business. They're always getting new CIOs, and generally they have a new team. And a lot of times they're like, well, I have the managing director of pro- public markets, private markets, um, or maybe sometimes credit, sometimes real estate. It's like, hey, there's the energy. What, what, why do I have a managing director of energy? You know, well, that, and that was going to be a question I was going to ask. Yeah. Is I mean, you know, when we when we went into shale revolution, the glory days you're talking about. I mean, you had real assets person, and they yeah. were an energy yeah. person. And I mean, there's some folks out there that, I mean, were full time energy folks and and really understood the business really well. Does that job exist today? Very rarely. I yeah. mean, generally that person. I mean, people are learning on the job. But generally, um, yeah, very rarely does like a big endowment have someone, especially oil and gas, like almost none hasn't even, even like your alma mater, John Lawrence, you know, does other things, you know, besides besides oil and gas now, you know, in terms of, but probably the leading sort of, you know, given his background and stuff in that, but very, very rare. Because you think about that, I mean, Michelle Everard yeah. retired, um, Amy Diamond's now CIO yeah, yeah, yeah. USC, yeah. and so. I mean, there's definitely like a sense of like, I, did you go to Michelle's retirement party in a. No, I could not make it. Yeah. I was so bummed that I didn't yeah, get that to. Yeah, there was definitely like a sense of like, you know, like, uh, you know, Fredo, I know it was you. Yeah. Kind of like, like the, it was. It was actually over. You know, sort of like the real assets, oil and gas. Like everyone was there. Everyone was in the room. Like, no, it's all hugging and, out. And crying. Verna kissed Amy. Fredo, I know. No, and who yeah. knows what? Who knows what would happen? But it was definitely like looking back on that moment of like sort of a. Uh, I, I think it was 2018. Doesn't it was like it was like the peak of sort of like happy things were. There's a lot of exits in 2018, right. 2019, and just sort of like peak happiness before covid and before like a sector really turned over in a lot of the investment because i talked to verna quo last week and i probably talked to her for about an hour and we talked to my dating life the whole time we didn't well, even talk energy what's more complicated more <laughs> yeah. no it's not it's very simple <laughs> it's these days. sweetie i only have yeah. eyes for you yes yeah. um yeah no. Swe- sweetie meaning the girlfriend yeah, yeah, not yeah. verna verna yeah. okay yeah no i mean you know it's um but yeah so i i think it's uh you know i think it's, it's good so does that so does that pitch or those discussions, I guess it entails some re-education in terms of things. And and I think the one thing that, you know, there's a very clean story that I think a lot of our peers are telling 
which is like the oil and gas business is like devoid of capital and oil is going to go to 200, you know, yeah. sort of like, and it's like, and then occasionally the investors will recognize like, didn't Exxon report record earnings last year? <laughs> and don't they have more money than they know what to do with in terms of free cash flow that they're not earning back public market, you know, um, uh, enthusiasm through dividends and share buybacks. And like every CEO of every publicly traded oil company is like, I've done everything you've asked and you still don't love me. <laughs> but it's not because the oil business doesn't have oil. You know, it, it's the financial markets still discount that cash flow at a, you know, at, at a crazy amount. But that, but so I think you have, you know, our pitch is like, you know, it's not just this like, you know, like we are not as an industry supplying enough oil and gas that the world needs. Saudi keeps on cutting back production because we're supplying too much as an industry right. to do it. So it's, it's the, the education it's, and this is, you always have this, and I'm sure you remember this, you always have this like challenge in this, in this job of let a conversation take the simplest <laughs> form so it can move on to other things or try to get very subtle where the complexities around why there's value in energy are not just, it's not really, it's cash flow use, it's strategy, it's geology, it's service availability, it's some energy transition, but it's also in the future because there's not a limit of supply right now or really limit of capital investment necessary, you know, even that could happen next year. It could happen, you know, five years from now. No one, no one really knows. So I think there's definitely a re-education on that because, you know, interesting, a lot of the people who come to us incoming still have that greed and fear like high that they're like doing a market mapping it's like yeah i heard things are two times cash flow you don't have to underwrite terminal value and like the industry's bound to be a hundred dollar oil you know at the end of the i was like let it be so sister let it be so <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's like more complicated than that in, in reality right. and so i think the and so i think the conversations now are re-ups you know you know kind of a been good partners. It, it is a good time to be investing in this sector, even if it's not, even if there's still competition for an asset, it's still a market that's trading at three to four times instead of seven, eight times. Right. There's still cash flow versus just, you know, sort of selling enterprise value or locations or delineation or things like that. So there is clearly de risk, less leverage. There's a lot of that. But it's at this point, it's making that case sort of like a solid, you know, this is a solid investment opportunity. This isn't. Like not the greed and fear or not. This is not like we're offering you seven X's or you're going to get fired if you don't right. do this. And then I think at the end, the issue is like of these groups that are still looking to put, they're like, when, are you closing tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, let's wait till we have to make a decision and see if someone hits me with a co-investment or hits me with, you know, as you know, a fund that already has a pending exit that we can, we can. <laughs> That was the most amazing fundraise. Yeah, on, they, on they, Kane, they, 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 that's going to be on Fund it's, Seven. It's yeah. going to be on your uh, tombstone. We, we, uh, we, yeah, we raised nine hundred million dollars in six and a half weeks because of the front page article about Silver Hill. Yeah, so yeah, being for sale. Yeah, yeah no. So I think you know, so I think yeah, and, and that's a very rational thing to do because the nice thing about private equity as an LP is you know you can be in the final close. Yeah, and there's some economic impacts of it. But you can also, in certain cases, if it's going on, have a view into a portfolio that you otherwise couldn't and have some fun of like sort of their media write-up and stuff. We like used to, what, what happened to us to, to give the impetus is I think we wound up giving a 50 basis point 
hit on or reduction of fees for the first two years if you'd be part of the first yeah. close. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, we we had to we had to put stuff like that out there because people were like, "Well, I want to see what you invest in." Well, I don't have any money, yeah. so it's really kind of yeah. Hard no, no, to, that's yeah. <laughs> kind of hard. To, yeah, and the nice thing about doing this for so long is you know you know well, yeah there's there is turnover but there's a lot of people who have still been doing it and you're you, know, you could be honest like why should i do it it's like, well it's good yeah. for me you know <laughs> make my job easier you know right. not good for me personally but it would you know we've been good partners and it make our life easier if you do it and like a lot of times we're like okay we, under, we understand yeah, and then you have some ec- economic incentive but you kind of need that in this business so on the scale of of the bar just opening uh, which is kind of like everything's tame, quiet, nothing happening to drunken sailors at two in the morning. Yeah. Where are we fundraising? Is it maybe 10 o'clock? People have had a drink. I think I mixed metaphors. I was doing one through 10. So, uh, sorry. Okay. Bars, so, oh, bar, oh, the bar. The so bar, the like bar's the, opening the bar is the one. Bar. Okay, the, the bar, bar opening is one. Um, 10 is drunken sailors at two in the morning being kicked out where are we fundraising wise i mean i think five through ten will never happen again <laughs> so, okay, okay, so, so, so it's like i like three two and three. a half three okay so, so it's like people are ordering drinks people are ordering drinks but it's more they're at tables and it's a okay. it's like a 70 year old couple ordering a, <laughs> okay. a, an expensive glass of wine rather than uh rather than uh people thinking and again it's and and then and then the one thing probably on this story that i that i i joke to people is one nice thing is energy private equity's relative difficulty compared to general private equity has not been this narrow in a very long time. And that's because energy private equity has come off from impossible to just annoying. And general private equity has come down a lot. Yeah. And that's come down, you know, the denominator effect, who knows, public markets have rebounded, so who knows. But, but that's also like, what general private equity did to LPs you know, during <laughs> COVID and before that of like, you know, Tiger Global too. Like they're raising a fund and then they're actually like talking about the fund they're going to come back with seven months later while they're raising a fund. Like you can be in this fund, but if you're in this fund, you can be in a f- another fund in seven months that we're coming like, and like just the amount of co- commitments that general private, general LPs did to private equity that have now not been called a lot. Because the markets, you know, IPOs haven't been good. And there's just not a lot of activity in M&A. It's that it's actually quite difficult in private equity. We're seeing that a little more in kind of renewables. Like, you know, you've come off a of sort of this, you know, amazing sort of, you know, desperate need to be in it. You know, maybe that was uh, the drunken in the bar and kind of renewable power three years ago, which we're not in, but that, that, uh, that sort of subsector. And so you now have energy private equity, like we're waking up, we're like, you know, like, yeah, trying to extend a bar metaphor. And, uh, you know, it's like, I just kind of, I just, I just came out of, I just came out of rehab. I'm, you know, <laughs> right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now presentable. I, uh, you know, I have the scars on my face. I've showered. Like, right. I'm, I'm ready, folks. And like, you come into the bar and it's like a third full versus the bar you, before you went to rehab, you kind of realized, uh, realized was always full. And that's just because it's, it's, be, uh, you know, I think roughly speaking, half of private equity commitments than are going to be, you know, for an average investor than they did before um, just because of overall portfolio dynamics and energy is no longer, you know, it's now like 
you'll do energy along, you know, a lot of them, it's sort of best athletes or just kind of general private markets. You're just kind of in the scrum yeah. with everyone else. And so back to where Ken Hirsch was in, in 96. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like, hey. it's like a thing. It's like a weird yeah. sector, but like people do litigation finance. Like there's right. some weird shit people do right. in private markets and that's one of them. And so, but in that it's, you know, if people are trying to shrink their capital, you know, I'm not, not to, you know, in terms of deployments right. and, and we'll see what happens if people feel confident about this public market rebound. And suddenly, like, we haven't done a commitment as much. And, you know, you could enter a period where people are, have to play a little catch-up. But that would also be depending also on public, uh, general private equity exits. So do this. You always have the standing invite to come on the podcast. But we'll for sure do this about five to seven years from now. Okay. What are we going to be talking about in five to seven years from now? that maybe people aren't thinking about today. I'm forcing you to look into your crystal ball. And I'll, I'll go one. Okay. I'll go, I'll go one on this so you can have time to, yeah. to think. And plus, you know, I don't mind embarrassing myself. Yeah. I think, and I've become fascinated with this as a, an investment thesis, and I talked some to Verna. That's actually why I called Verna. I actually think we're going to see kind of the rise of power, of power electricity, as kind of the oil of the last 50 years, if you want. All, all the things you were saying about oil, it's your inflation hedge, it's driver of the economy, fear, you've got to have this. I think we're gonna see the same thing with power rising because if you think of electricity, we use just over 4 trillion kilowatts a year. And it's grown, it's, it's up 14x since 1950. But if you look at it kind of since 2000, if, if you look at the slope, you know, from 1950 to 2000, it was like this, the slope's been a lot less. It's grown over the last 20 years. I think one, that was just, we spent a lot of money getting Y2K stuff done. So you kind of advanced, you pulled forward some oh. of the, the demand. Number two, we just got, you know, we spent a lot of time during the, the 2000s making machines way more efficient, yeah. a lot of stuff. The Bitcoin miners won't admit this, but the machines, they haven't gotten any more efficient over the last two years. So I think that stuff's gone. And I'll throw one stat at you. If you run a Google search, and I do 100 of those a day, right? One kilowatt. If you run an AI search, the same thing, five kilowatts. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. One watt for a Google search. Yeah. Five watts for an AI-driven search. To train that AI language yeah. model to be able to run that, anywhere from 100 watts to 1,000 watts. AI is going to be embedded in everything we do going forward. So I, you know, when you look, I think McKinsey says by the year, and I'll get this wrong, I think it's 2045, we're going to use 2x the amount of electricity. Elon Musk says 3x. Uh, PG&E's official report is 70% up. I think how, gonna, how, what, in what, what time period? Until 2045. Yeah. I think we're blowing through all that. I think it's 10x yeah. through that because it's just, and it's going to wind up being the thing that you and the portfolio, that's your fear. Oh my God. Because yeah, say what you want about oil. We can always drill a well in Texas. Always drill a well in Oklahoma. 
power. We got to build a power plant. We got to connect it. There are engineering issues to get it on the grid, regulatory yeah. issues. Anyway, so that that's my thing I think we're going to be talking about. You know, I mean, we have some insight into that through like our Lime Rock New Energy. Two of the portfolio companies were kind of grid modernization businesses. The one thing we, you know, I've learned because I'm, you know, by accident, like an oil and gas guy. Right. And, you know, and I, I feel like, the BP statistical review, which is not the BP statistical review, but the statistical review of world. When that opens up, it's like, this is fun. Like I've been looking at you for 19 years. I love going, like I, I have like this intuitive sense of oil or like someone tells me a dollar per acre number, like this sector, which I've had to learn over the four, like I've had to learn it. And it, you realize I'm also a lot older than, you know, you know, 25 or 27 years ago when I started learning oil and gas, it takes a while. One thing I've learned in there is how unusually fragmented it works in the oil and gas business that may not be as applicable to power. Because you think about it, like an average Kane Anderson E&P company, 30 people? Oh, five guys in a rusty pickup truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they 20, yeah. And if they, if they yeah. drilled some wells, they had 25 yeah. pumpers, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then service, like, you know, the amount of like different levels of service companies. Like, I don't want to use Schlumberger. They're not going to ignore me or I'm going to, yeah. So there's like, there's like a level of entrepreneurship there's a level of fragmentation, a level of a kind of almost a virtual companies that you have with an EMP company in particular, that power is really, there is an advantage, especially it's dominated by utilities, especially the capital cost. Like there is an, like, is this a great sector for private equity? Think about deep water offshore. Is yeah, that a great no, I, is that, that, that's exactly yeah, yeah. what I was saying. So, so, the, so the question for us and like, not as like human beings, like what are we gonna do? But as like investors, there is something well suited for super fragmented, also volatile. If you can, if you're on the right side <laughs> of volatile, that's either fatal right. or a good way to make money. About what you can do with that, that uh, that I, I, you know, you just kind of, you know, utilities have other things besides making money. For for as a consumer, you want yeah. them to reliability. Grandmother stays alive uh, during the winter. Yeah, 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 and like you know, and and uh, you know, and and price, you know, and also there's issues of fairness and pricing where I have rooftop solar in my house, which, but like the poor guy in Louisiana in the apartment, you know, is effectively <laughs> buying my net meter. Are they effectively helping to pay for, you know, uh, you know, so, so there's like issues that, you know, and they're not, you know, utilities, it's, it's, you know, they're every, they're what you think they are, you know, in terms right. of, you know, they're bureaucratic, slow moving, conservative businesses, but the issue in like power, where's the hustle. And then the, and then the other thing is like, you know, this is not going to be a perfect, um, like, are we going to sort of socialize reliability in a way where the hustler can put up a wind farm or a battery and that utility is the one who's going to have to make sure the lights are on by this gas peaker plant and, and, and that. So how do you manage like society's, you know, kind of ability? Because that's, that's like the fundamental, like, and it just drives me crazy debate about like levelized cost of electricity where the green guys are like, it's you know incrementally cheaper. So I, it's a no brainer. The oil and gas guys are like, yeah, but you're relying on an existing grid and existing you know, intermittency solutions and gas peaker. And then, so that isn't really your cost because you're just sort of free riding on that. But then the green guys are like, well, that already exists. You know, mm -hmm. we don't, yeah. So it's like, it's a very challenging thing. So I, I think, I mean, there's probably a reason why to date there have been 
80 oil and gas private equity firms, some RIP, but what, five power private equity firms, you know, in terms like pure, pure play. And so this is, this is fascinating talking this, and I may, why I actually want, I should tell the audience, I may wind up doing something here because I've been thinking a lot about it is I actually think the product that needs to be available to folks is pure, just beta power price. I had, and I had Tim Kramer. I don't know if you've ever met Tim. Tim uh, has the only ETF or mutual fund that has direct exposure to power prices. He, he, he. Oh yeah, he, I, I do. I, I have met him. He's actually been on my porch in New Orleans. Like, he's, oh, have we you have really? A, we have a mutual yeah. friend. We have a mutual friend. He and I, he and I, he came on the podcast. We talked about that and we've actually killed way too many brain cells over too many glasses of wine thinking about it. But I think he, I think he's right. I mean, because of all this, what I'll call stickiness, you just said of how we're going to get more power onto the grid and actually get it to yeah. people. I mean, higher price is the only thing that does that. Yeah. And I think the flip side is if power prices don't go up, electricity prices don't go up, you're going to have the economic boom of all time. Yeah. You know, if we're actually able to I- feed the electricity to everyone. But the other, yeah, I mean, I think one thing of the shale revolution that's been the only probably disappointing besides equity returns to oil and gas company holders is like reindustrialization of the United States, you know, has not happened what I think people thought 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, And that's one of the reasons energy use has gone down in the United States because, you know, this microphone is built in China and, you know, right. where, where it used to be, the energy used to build this microphone. Now to run the microphone is, is a state of Texas, but it used to right. be to manufacture it. So I know we had the chance to do that. Yeah. And instead we just send Amazon vans three times a day yeah, to our house. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, exactly. what we did with yeah, the shale revolution. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, all right. So your crystal ball, what are we talking about in five to seven years? Um, I think more, much more international. Okay. Um, like there's no question the shale revolution has matured and there's no question that if oil and gas meets even slightly declining demand, it's not coming much more. Uh, yeah, there'll be an active thing in the United States, but the United States is maturing, consolidating, uh, and really where the entrepreneurial energy will be is internationally. And it's really difficult because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Resource ownership, corruption, it's ENP internationally. I mean, we've tried. And this is so true. I've done a deal in California. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and so, uh, um, yeah, so I think that's going to have to be part of, you know, and, and does the international, you know, what has to happen will happen. You know, it's sort of cliche, like at some point, if we're going to use 100 million barrels a day of oil and, you know, and... uh 350 BCF a day of gas that has to come from international unconventionals at some point. Um, just- yeah, we've hit everything, I think, in the United States, every rock formation with the bigger hammer. Yeah. And I don't see a technology out there that I could kind of draw a straight line to, oh, yeah, this will increase production dramatically. I don't, I don't see it. Maybe I mean, the, there the, is the, one the, well, the technology, you see it on your Bloomberg, which is like $110 oil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So so, so that I mean, so there is like a scenario where that the incremental risk you need to do, you know, 
Peru. I mean, I'm just make up a country. Yeah. Peruvian shale. You know, I mean, Peru exists. Just right. I didn't make up Peru, but Peruvian shale. Yeah, probably the Powder River Basin is going to be working if uh, you know because yeah. oil is 110 dollars a barrel for risk. So I think internationally is going to be uh, uh, much uh, much more important. I think the industry is going to be a lot smaller for sure, and I think it's going to return probably to 2002 where you know it's it's finding value in very localized pockets of growth um that that ha- that you know is going to be most of it the big question that no one has solved and whether it makes sense in a public market whether it makes sense in a private market is like who's going to own be the terminal owner of the shale revolution in yeah. the united states and is it the Lime Rock resources, the merits that it's like, we're going to change the business model to own it forever, the scouts, things like that? Is it, you know, this KKR vehicle? I think it's Contango now or whatever, where it's like public, you know, and, and to avoid the MLP messiness, but do that. But I think that's also a huge thing that, you know, it just could be throwing out a huge amount of cash flow. And the one question is, does Exxon just want to own it? Because Exxon's going to be like Philip Morris. It's like, we're just going to give out high dividends and keep it flat. And we're going to have enough people who are going to like it that we're going to, we're going to make a lot of happy investors. Or does that have a shift towards um, private hands? Unclear. And maybe it's a supply demand of capital issue. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Because that is the one thing that I've heard from folks out fundraising that I never heard when I was in the, the game is there's a real discussion. And, and, and when Eric came and spoke at our empower conference, Eric and I talked about it on stage is do investors really talk about tails and not being valued and potentially regulated out of business. And that's a real thing yeah. in, in terms of at least a discussion point that never before. I mean, yeah, clearly the public market is not valuing their tail. They're valuing right. it three times cash, you know, five times, four and a half times cash flow. They're clearly saying this is worthless. And if it's worthless, you know, do you, and do you, and does, you know, does an average, does Conoco want tens of thousands of, you know, stripper wells, you know, five years from now? Probably not, you know. Uh, yeah. No, that's interesting. So, all right. I want to hear about the new book. Yes. And you were kind enough to send me a copy to it. Thank I you. read it. When I was in Sardinia, laying on the beach, yeah, in between bottles of wine, not even glasses of wine. Each each copy comes with a free trip to Sardinia. I'm down to one, and <laughs> unlimited wine just to get through it. Exactly. So so give me the thumbnail on the book. Um, tell the readers or tell the listeners what the book's about, and then I got questions. Okay, it is a novel about the chief investment officer of a kind of an unnamed and imaginary college endowment. And it is trying through a very, very four mo- difficult months of his life in a novel set exclusively almost of trustees, of asset managers, of hedge funds, of his employees set in conference rooms on telephone calls. It is, it is trying to get where investing is not like the background of the novel, but investing is really like the moral drama of the novel. And as this person's wondering, how do I how do I succeed? How do I fulfill my purpose as a person? You know, and 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 like all good novelists, I'm 
torturing him with uh, kind of kind of bad news and, and and challenges and then it ends the hero's journey i mean it's classic it, it, hero joseph campbell's hero's yeah. journey and it ends in like a very very long scene where he meets with this college's most famous finance alumni one of these like big hundredth richest men in the world hedge fund guys is like a very uh uh, reclusive guy and it ends with like a very you know kind of pattern a bit after the grand inquisitor scene in the brothers karamazov it's like trying to be like a you know get to the you know the essentials uh and like an unresolvable essentials of what it means to be investing to be alive to care and all, all that kind of stuff so i may be reading my own biases into this but i'm going to say some stuff and and tell me if i picked up on this or no i was making it up the one thing I think you did really well in the story that I don't think people appreciate, particularly within the, the, the cone of the energy sector, is you make the point that investing is a relative thing, right? I mean, I hear all the time, well, I can buy PDP at PV15 today. That's great. And I'm like, well, if Apple stock doubles next yeah. year, that's not great. Yeah. And you did that. Did I pick up on that right? Were you trying to, to trying to say that? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe the only audience will be people in energy private equity, but hopefully we'll get at least 100 more readers. So I was, <laughs> I was like, but, you know, I think it was very systematic to try for both dramatic purposes, but also try for this to be kind of like a primer for like the guy I was coming out of college knowing nothing about finance of like trying to give an exposure. Here's venture capital. Here's hedge funds. Here's and, and real that, estate. Yeah, yeah, here's and here's like and and because that's like pretty interesting about investing, where it's not just hey, and there's like a very brief scene with our minerals uh uh fund in there pitching them, but it's like minerals fund, yeah. Well, what about like just like having exposure to the Indian consumer through public stocks? Like that's what they're thinking about. Now, sometimes and, and this is purposely a smaller endowment, it's about six billion dollars and I play a lot of games that amuse myself. It's like people think, oh, that must be brown. It's like, nice. You can't be brown because I mentioned it's not brown. Or it's <laughs> Cornell, Rice or UVA or, or things like that. But it's, it's like a smaller team specifically. So the organizing brain in it and the team is small. So they're constantly having to compare, hey, this guy says, I mean, early scene, private credit. It can deliver low risk credit for, you know, deliver... 10% returns, uh, 2% origination fees, 8% interest rates, and he'll never lose, you know. And like, and it's like, I think every investor always has this thing where you're out there pitching two and a half, three X funds, but then someone's like, if you were given a button and you could generate 10% zero risk returns for the rest of your life, most people would push that button. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, so it's like, it's sort of trying to get that in, that drama in, but also have it so just like people understand like what this life is and how these same themes resonate. And they're not just themes of specific investments, right? Just like, is this person honest? Is this person hungry? Is this person, do we tolerate that he's an asshole? You know, yeah. do we like it that he's an asshole? You know, do we, do we, uh, you know, do we, you know, is he, do we like it that he's a windbag? Is it, you know, and, and is he just, and then the big one, as you know, is he just fucking lucky? Yeah. Sorry, Ms. Yates. Is he? Is he just? Yes. Is he? Is Again, he, my mom. Yeah, yeah. She's is, 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 he, is he just lucky? You know. So real, real, real quick on Sally Yates. We're sitting there at dinner one night with, and I just gone and seen a comedian with my brother and my sister in law. We're telling mom about the uh, comedian, 
And um, my sister-in-law was like, yeah, I mean, the comedian was funny, but just cussed way too much for me and all that. And I it just, I, I really hate the use of the C word. That's not great. My dear sweet mom goes, my God, he said crap. <laughs> <laughs> True story. But, um, cause it, so the first podcast I ever did, I had two anonymous folks on from Energy Finance Twitter, and 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 they were giving me grief about you guys just didn't make that much money, you know, you invested all those dollars, you didn't, and I don't think they appreciated that. Hey, a CIO is sitting there going, "I've run the scenario where oil prices collapse, I've run the the scenario where oil prices triple, I need X amount of exposure." So. I don't want to sit there and say, you know, I'm so great and all that sort of stuff. But my job was to get them that exposure. That was a key element yeah. to it. You want to make money. And they said, no, you should want to make money on every investment you make. And I go, do you want to make money off life insurance? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard. And that's like the one but thing. But you, you, I'm cutting you off and I'm sorry, yeah. but you really did a good job of the CIO grappling with yeah. that. And I think that would be value add for people to to pick up from the book yeah and it's and it's like and, and you know there's like an organizing and that's maybe just my own ethics or just point of view to it's less less uh, pretentious um you know it's want to be more pretentious on occasion but it's like you know, i'd love to be pretentious yeah just one day we're gonna talk the rest of this podcast <laughs> like this um uh, so the the british girlfriend her line is we invented your language, and we really don't like what you Texans have done with it. Oh, <laughs> so, like, okay. Oh, let's hear your British accent. That's yeah, awesome. it's horrible. Okay, got it. We it sounds Australian. <laughs> um, but you know, I think so. You know, the novels about Wall Street have like a a very specific lane. They're thrillers. There's a lot of Russians. There's a lot of cocaine. Yeah. There's a lot of prostitutes, and there's always some murder. And it's like it's attempt to glamorize it is one lane. And then general novels tend to have get rich people in it and they have to have jobs. Right. You know, so like a novel about New York City rich people. Of course, there's going to be guys in finance and the author is going to do research. So he usually will sound kind of like 40 percent off. But at least he's 60 percent right. to saying Global Investment Inc. You know, <laughs> the guy is, a you know, and I, I once read a um novel of a friend who asked me to do this had a character i was like this guy is like an investment banker hedge fund private private equity group. it's like he's the best of wall street like you have no right. idea this guy does not have a defined job you just right. throw <laughs> random words that you think you know about so i think one of the purposes of the novel was and it's almost like self-defeating was like de-glamorize the business in a way and you know there's you know very you know, and, and there's no scandals I mean, I think if, as I think about things, I regret, like the, the worst people are kind of assholes and windbags, but not actually grifters. I mean, maybe one. But but that's actually probably closer to reality. Oh, yeah, no, that's 100%. Than, 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 yeah, because yeah, I mean. 100%, but it's like, as you know, when you go to a New York City publisher, like, we want the grifters. We, right. want, we want Adam Newman and uh, right. we want uh, Bernie Madoff. Like, this is what we think. And like, this has to be a page turner of just, and then, and we want them to 
be in Sardinia, um, you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, at the uh, Gucci store, uh, you know, buying, uh, dropping a $75,000 for, you know, sandals, you know, or, right. you, know, uh, you know, or a bag to store their cocaine, you know? So it was like, you know, it was like, yeah. So I think part of the novel, it's, you know, it's a, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's trying to be funny, short, it's like fast, but it's like, you know, the challenge that had been as like an economic entity is it kind of doesn't really play um, into the expectations people have of what they want, which is like rich people unf- unfairly giving right. their money kind of by cutting corners and then behaving badly. This is about generally speaking, just sort of like, you know, a difficult thing of a guy who takes his job seriously with no easy answers, you know, and, and, and- Do you- <sighs> I had one other thought that came out while I was uh, while I was reading this story, because, like we just talked about, CIO sits there and goes, macro wise, I need exposure to the Indian consumer. I need this, that, and kind of lays it out. And then within that, it's how do I play this? Yeah. Which manager do I go with? And I don't know if you made this point or if I just again kind of read my own bias into it. It felt like the, because he said, I want, you know, I want to generate some alpha within my beta bets, i.e. I want a top half or a top quartile manager within it. It almost felt like you might have been saying in the background, chasing alpha is leading you to take more risk and you might be damaging your beta bet. Did you say that yeah, or did no, or did I kind of I read mean, there, that into There's it? like a very specific case where, yeah, in that one manager. And again, this is not like I've, I think I have one Chinese ETF that, yeah, that I don't even know why I have. I just like, but yeah, but it's not like I'm an expert on uh, Asian, uh, uh, Asian uh, long short uh, strategies um, or know anyone who does it actually. Yeah. But it was like, yeah, there is a scene in there where it's like, hey. I know this is when you think about a pool of capital that'll be around for hundreds of years, like most college endowments probably will. I should have exposure to the Chinese, you know, Chinese and Indian consumer, but I did it before with some guy who made wrong bets. Yeah. And it turned out that I was in that case, you know, he was just talking that. And again, this is the book was written. You know, there was a period where like it was sort of like the fang equivalent in the U S where all the market w- uh, appreciation was going to big names if you did that in the in China, India, when the same thing was happening, or Brazil, you know, you would lose out all of these things you want, and it's just like the you know, and so there's a lot of sympathy for having to do that, and there's also you know a through line through the whole book, which is like maybe you should do nothing, yeah, you know, you know and and you know and and you know, the one uh, true scene in there is like. Jack Bogle, uh, you know, kind of meeting when the CIO meets it. Like I once sat for like 45 minutes in Jack Bogle's office uh, with, with John Reynolds. And so that's the one like, and it's not perfectly accurate because I didn't take notes or anything, but you know, kind of pretty memorable. Um, but just sort of like that of like, well, we have figured this out finance. <laughs> 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 We're sort of passive broad exposure works. You exactly. Know, and like, what do you guys do for a living? Oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. You're basically trying to undermine what I've been proving for 50 years to be the case, uh, you know, which is passive broad exposure works. And I, cause I, cause I like that point in the book. And I will go ahead and since it was such a funny line, your buddy John Farber, I made that point one time. I said, you know, when I think about energy private equity and chasing of alpha, 
I think it led us to take more risks than we should have and, and maybe destroyed the beta benefit. And he just said, well, Chuck, you've never generated alpha, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Seriously? Thank you. Really appreciate that. All right. One of the most mortifying things on the planet is when my dad retired, he started writing novels. And the novels have sex scenes. So I will. About him and your mother or like. No. no, So he's kind of got his stuff is kind of John Grisham. light. He's got this small town lawyer and it's based on Richmond, Texas, where we where we live and all. Spoiler alert. There's no sex scene in your book. But one of the questions I kept asking, and this is maybe because I'd had too many bottles of wine. Did the CIO and Emily sleep together? No, no, they didn't. No. Okay. That was definitely too much. That was definitely uh, read into. Uh, no, not that never even crossed my mind. No one else okay. has brought that up. Okay. So that's just me. I was just, that was, that was you desperately searching for what every novel should, every novel should have sex. <laughs> and, you know, and this novel was very, I mean, what you read in the final draft was much more open than the first vision of the novel, which was even more austere, which was like, there's like a scene outside. There's like a scenes of like, him smashing a computer but in like the first draft it was like almost all dialogue very little he said she said just person come in and just like and you know there's like some precedents there's a contemporary novelist rachel cusk who does that about sort of broader life there's a very hard to read novel called jr by this guy william gaddis that was all this so it's like a very very like sort of i set myself like this tight box that was like not even like a heartbeat it was just all like brains talking about you know kind of chasing alpha and, and and doing it and then it's kind of gotten more human but i still you know there's not a lot about his home life it's kind of implied it kind of comes in there but it, again there's uh you know it's uh there's literary critic james wood who talked about another book he said it was like the book was set in botswana like botswana was the fabric not the backdrop of the novel like this one i want to invest in to be the fabric not the backdrop just because resisting you know the novels like like literary thrillers that happen to have a Wall Street, you know, kind of uh, character in them, right? Um, and, and and like I, and I'm, you know, it's like there's plenty of those books out there, and you don't need me to write that for you. Because the reason I ask that is, you know, if you listen to Brene Brown or read her stuff, you know, pressure point for a woman is always body image. Yeah. Pressure point for a man is can he fix things. And when we can't fix things, that leads to shame, our self-destructive behavior. And I really kind of lived that, you know, during what our industry went through with the pandemic. Right. I, I jokingly say I became the Oprah of the, of the oil and gas business. And I really did because I'd go on the podcast. I'd have my priest talk about all the therapy yeah. I go through. So the reason I ask if he had the affair is you do a very good job of humanizing the CIO and I related to him. I yeah. mean, just the pressures of the job, the self doubt, he couldn't fix it. What are the quarterly numbers going to be? So it wouldn't have, I was waiting for potentially Emily to say, well, you shouldn't have slept with me yeah, that no. night, you know, cause he, I mean, he, he is verge of the bad behavior that shame brings out of all of us, yeah. unfortunately. And yeah. And, and again, like, but it has all, you know, it's like has every, every human being, there's always someone more successful, right? There's always someone and you always think like, sometimes, is he smarter than me or did he just get lucky? You know, did he lucky? Did, you know, and, and private equity, hey, that guy had an easy fundraise and writing like this guy's had a career as a novelist. 
despite you know maybe not being as good of a novelist as me, you know, <laughs> that is the career I he or she has had that I've wanted. So there's there's a sense of like trying to really embody that emotion of like you know I'm not a bad person. I'm it's a lot. Maybe it's ego, but it's also trying to contribute to the world, and the world doesn't really care. You know, sometimes, yeah. you know, it's like the world can be mean, the world can be, and especially on the investing side, you know, and I think, you know, I'm probably, you know, you kind of ham up, you know, sort of like the industry during the days, but it was like, you were still trying to generate good returns for your investor and oh, being, totally. like, yeah, being a very responsible person. Like sometimes it's- I like, threw, mm -hmm. so when we, when we signed uh, the sale and purchase agreement for Silver Hill, to buy the offsetting uh, acreage that we bought that was Silver Hill too. Yeah. I was sitting there staring at a model that showed a 50% rate of return, tripling, quadrupling my money, but it took $40 oil and oil was at $31.25 yeah. when we signed that, that PSA. And I threw up that night. I mean, I really did not alcohol induced, like literally stress induced. Yeah. It's a real thing. Yeah. So I really connected with the guy. Yeah, no, it's and 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 you're just trying. Yeah, so that's purpose of you know, and that, that and then people have read the book who are, you know, one of the interesting things about the response to the book is there are some who are just like, and it, it's there's like new scenes that have been added to the front end to try to ease you into it, but like in its first austere phase, like you're just like thrown into a pitch, and it's like some people read it are like, this does not make any. This is not even in English. <laughs> like it's like a private credit manager hotshot who worked at Apollo pitching a fund, which is now like the third scene or something. But it was like the first scene, and you know, and I try to like you watch shows all the time where you don't know what's going on immediately, or you or you watch listen to music, and you yeah, there's like a depth of creativity that you have no idea, like what even the instruments are playing, or like how that's done, and you still appreciate it. And so the one interesting reaction is there has been, because it's set in finance, it's like, I cannot read this, certain reactions. It's like, well, you can. Or it's like, I don't get, like my mother, um, stop reading it. Uh, <laughs> she's like, I just don't, I, I was like, I really don't, you know, it's like, that's fine. It's like, yeah. I, not, it's like, it's like <laughs> but it's like, I, I did want to say, it's like, I'm sure you could read yeah. it, you know? And it's like, so try to open up to a different language to that and people who do get through it have said hey i didn't i still didn't understand it's like it's okay i don't understand 15 percent of it i don't understand 50 percent of most things i read you know truly but like people who have who've come from outside of finance are like not only do i kind of understand this better but also it applies to my life in you know very universal ways and and i and i'll say it this way and i'm not just blowing smoke at you i think you did a nice enough job with it it's like somebody that watches sean white snowboard for the first time you don't know what the rules right. are you don't know what that you do know that dude is better than anyone else and that was the whole thing i mean you were connecting with the cio you yeah. felt the pain he was going through and and the the finance stuff in there is simple enough that yeah, you, can, no. you can you can pick up enough of Oh, this guy's a blowhard. Okay, yeah. this guy's real. Yeah. So, title of the book, where can people get it? Uh, it's called The Counting House. It's uh, not available. It's till November 15th, but you can buy it now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, books, like any, go online, just type Gary Cerner, it's The Counting House, and you could pre-order it. So, it could be the first. Nice. And hit your Kindle. <laughs> Perfect. On the second, it's available and for 18 
barely basically for eighteen dollars, eighteen dollars a kidney kidney kidney. You were cool to come on the podcast. Thank I you. really appreciate you doing it. The one thing I'm gonna say though, I'm kind of pissed off. I didn't pick this bone with you because I wanted to you used real live finance people names in your fiction book, and yet there's no Yates Capital. Sequel, sequel. Will <laughs> <laughs> all be about Yates Capital, the the implosion of a, of a, of a, of a once mighty <laughs> of a once mighty financial powerhouse, recrimination, self loathing, and all that. Be, I've seen the I've seen I've seen that. Or, you know, maybe I'll just like steal lines from it. And Perfect. It'll be a long lawsuit about uh, about, uh, about <laughs> life rights that I've stolen your life rights by nice uh, grand nice novel. exactly. That's awesome, mm. Gary. Thanks for coming. Thanks on. for having me. I appreciate it.